0: welcome to Lab the Podcast. We share time with people whose lives and work are helping re-enchant a world flattened by the fiction that we are alone and in the center. I'm grateful you're here for the conversation and invite you to join us in pursuit of more life and beauty. Lab the Podcast starts right now. Hey, welcome to Lab the Podcast. We are in Advent season, and it's a season of hope and expectancy, a season permeated with history and mystery. And this is, without a doubt, my favorite time of the year. And so I'm glad you're all here for the conversation. Around 13 years ago, a friend of mine mentioned that he was bringing a friend of his to church and to the church that I was pastoring at the time. And it was a particular Sunday leading up to Christmas. He was excited about this person for all sorts of reasons that will come out down the road. But one thing stood out to me in particular, and it actually made me a bit nervous. Sometimes when people are saying they're going to bring somebody to church— there's this little nudge that we're, it's like somebody's bringing somebody to meet their family, and they're like with a wink implicitly saying, don't mess it up, don't embarrass me. That was the case here, and which easy enough uh, when the person's coming to church, but when the person coming is a brilliant and rising star in the hard sciences, and the occasion of her first visit to your church is you preaching on the virgin birth and incarnation, It makes you nervous, which is the case for me. And unfortunately, in our culture, faith and science can sometimes be set at odds. They're exclusive to one another. And when that happens, we lose something really rich and beautiful. And holding the two of those in tension and together requires wonder and imagination and reason And that combination is rare and beautiful. Well, my next guest attended church that day. She did come, and she embodies the best combination of those three, wonder, imagination, and reason. Liz Flannery is the Oregon State Police Portland Metro Forensic Laboratory Director. She's the graduate of the University of San Diego, holding degrees in biology and chemistry, and has spent the last 14 years applying her craft in pursuit of criminal justice. Liz has been recognized in her field not only for excellence with her mind, but also for her deep empathy and compassion. She's a scientist, an athlete, a wife, a mom, and someone who navigates the difficult terrain of criminal justice science scientifically, and with great faith and hope and love. She's also somebody who I deeply respect and admire. Liz, thanks for making time in an afternoon to hang out with all of us. We're super grateful.
1: Oh, Zach, thank you so much. And what an introduction. I'm I'm just so humbled by your kind words. Thank you. I'm
0: so excited to be here. Yeah, well, this is good. I I get to see you. Not everybody gets to see you, but we're doing this one video so I can see you. And I was nervous when you came to church. I really was. Uh, part because I didn't want to blow it for Brian. Uh, Brian is a good friend of mine and there was some hope a twinkle in his eye during that time of year that you would not run in the other direction and i think he was nervous i would i would cause a problem for him so <laughs> i was nervous for that but also because the incarnation is this beautiful and wonderful moment and like i said it's history and mystery and you can't make it anything less you can't make it smaller and it can be known, it can be investigated and explored, but at some level, it's there for us to embrace as a miracle. And that's that requires somebody to tread that ground with wonder and be willing to kind of be open. And like I said, faith and science sometimes are at odds with each other. You bring both and have brought both. I've watched for the last 14 years just this beautiful picture uh, where you are uh, embodying both. Has that always been the case? I mean, was, were both of those always a part of your story?
1: You know, I think I've always had this deep curiosity for understanding how the world works. Um, as a kid, I I always had this desire to read about how does systems work, the the body, how does you know, your body fight infection. I think that's an appropriate topic for right now. And, um, you know, I've just always had this deep curiosity. I think as I went into biology at a higher level and at the university level, I think I started to reconcile a little bit, um, about how do faith and science meet? And, and I just wanted to say, you know, I did not grow up in a faithful household. Um, I actually, a lot of my faith was um, developed by uh, a teacher that I had when I was younger and really didn't embrace um, deep faith until I was almost 28 years old when I was baptized. Um, But I think one of the things that I really just am so certain about is that the world and our bodies and the systems that make up the natural world could not possibly exist without the presence of God because they are so beautiful and so complex, and it just makes me have a deeper appreciation for that. Um, and exploring science really just gives me deeper faith in God.
0: Yeah, I love. Um, that's the curious thing, like your your discipline in the hard science didn't narrow your focus but it just keeps widening it and the more you see the more you wonder and the more you wonder the more you see and I think that that's beautiful. You picked it up somewhere in that family story, that curiosity and that wonder. Were there particular people in your story as you were disciplined in the hard science? Are there people out here on this side of the story that contributed to that imaginative side of you and kind of nurtured that? Because you paint, you're an artist, you you appreciate those, that, that side of things as well. Who were the influences that nurtured that part of you as you were developing this other capacity?
1: Um, you know, I think a lot of that development came from uh, teachers and friends. Um, and, you know, a lot of my curiosity was developed by people like you who really have touched my life in a way that is so unique. Um, I think uh, there's a lens that each person brings to their faith. And sometimes we get stuck in a place where we think it has to look a certain way. But people come into our lives and show us that there are different lenses and that we don't have to be in a box and we can develop all of these parts of us. We can step into all of the pieces and have that be beautiful even though it might be flawed. And some of the people that really helped me guide that, um, you know, just really embraced pieces of themselves as well, that they just recognized that God gave them this gift to develop. And those people have been teachers. They have been my husband. They have been you. They have been some of my closest friends. And, you know, my bosses, some of the leaders in my life, uh, people that are unexpected. um, Just if you're open to it, I think you can find that kind of guidance everywhere.
0: As you were, you were at the University of San Diego, is that correct? Biology, chemistry, that was your world was criminal justice kind of even a part of your thinking, or were you kind of heading towards medicine were you Did you change course? did you stumble into criminal justice, or was there a passion for justice that kind of led you to combine science and justice
1: you know it 's so funny I totally stumbled into criminal justice. Uh, I started off um, thinking that I wanted to be a marine biologist, which is why I ended up at the University of San Diego. And I tell you that, Zach, I spent one day on a boat collecting samples and was so sick, <laughs> I couldn't manage it. I was like, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> so um, I actually uh, decided to move to more of a, a general biology Uh, discipline, ended up in chemistry as well, although chemistry, I will tell you, was torture, but I made it through. Um, And, you know, I really just found it fascinating. I think one of the most interesting classes I ended up taking was in in immunology um, and learning all of these amazing components within our own body that fight uh, foreign uh, bacteria, foreign viruses in our body. And I was just so amazed by how complex that was. I thought, oh, I have to go into medicine. And I think medicine was really attractive to me initially because not only did it incorporate this amazing uh, perspective in how the body worked, it was an opportunity to continuously learn about it and to be involved in research and, and learn um, on a daily basis but it was also an opportunity to connect with people and i've always really found that attractive i've always um had this deep love for people and so i felt like this would be such a great combination for me so um you know graduated with my degree with the intention of of going into the medical field and um recognized i did not want to go back to school right away um that i really needed some time to kind of figure out my path, where I wanted to be, and, uh, started working at the Oregon Health and Sciences University in the, uh, the pathology department. And, um, that was an interesting perspective because it was really more the science component. There wasn't a lot of interpersonal reaction, interactions. And, um, I recognized that, uh, in the research world of science, there tends to be a lot more introverted personalities, <laughs> which was really difficult for me because I'm so extroverted. And uh, so, you know, really started to evaluate some of the other pathways forward and um, found this posting with the Oregon State Police in forensics, which was great because there was a science component that I really loved. And it really attracted me because of the community service element. Oh my gosh, this is something that I know the work I'm doing is going to make our world safer. So um it really, really got me excited. So I applied thinking, oh, there's no way. I have no experience in forensics specifically. Um, and of course I have to mention that this was pre-CSI before it became super popular, right? And uh I was so excited. Got the job. It took him almost six months to fully hire me because, as you can imagine, in the world of forensics, we go through background checks and all of that. And uh, started working in forensics, and I've been there for fourteen years. So
0: <laughs> I can rem- I-, I can kind of imagine reading that job announcement as you are. In a research laboratory without extroversion and without channel. And then you <laughs> see this thing that says, We're going to invite you into not collecting samples in the water something far easier. We're going to go into crime scenes and into dark, dark places. And you think, well, yes. yeah, you can have the boat. I want that. The super dark area. You lean in, you go, you meet people, you start out uh, working in the forensic laboratory, and now you are the director of Portland. And if you're familiar, yeah, people know Portland and Portlandia. Liz is the director of the forensic division for that area of the world and it's a beautiful part of the world, but it's got challenges and there's a lot going on there. What's your, I mean, tell us a little bit about just so we can set context. We're going to talk faith. We're going to talk faithful presence in your, in your discipline. But just to kind of get our imagination, because we have the CSI perspective about what you do, talk a little bit about what forensic scientists do and then what you did and then what you do today, because you're now, you're kind of in a different role today, but you've moved through that. So help us imagine kind of the role of a forensic scientist and then take us to kind of Liz's job as you drive into Portland and do what you do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as a forensic scientist, I think one of the kind of misnomers in the world of forensics is that a lot of people um, actually specialize in specific disciplines. And forensics is more of an umbrella term um, that basically uh, requires the application of science to criminal justice. And our sole job is to answer investigative questions, not to establish guilt not to establish anything except for answer questions using science. And those questions can be from a variety of things, such as DNA analysis or glass fragment analysis, fingerprints, shoe impressions, explosives, arson, uh, toxicology, so drugs in the blood and urine of individuals, are they impaired in some way? Um, And so forensics is really this massive world of intrigue. There is exploration using instrumentation, uh, the comparative sciences, pattern recognition, and um, there's opportunity to grow into multiple types of disciplines. So if you're interested in forensic science, um, there are some artistic components There are very technical, scientific components, and it tends to attract quite a variety of individuals because of that. Um, My personal experience was with fingerprints, or what we call latent prints, and I spent about seven years doing that. And what that looked like was um, evaluating various types of evidence for fingerprints. So one of the parts that I really loved about this was the science behind the development of your fingerprints is so fascinating. Your fingerprints develop before you're even born. And they are unique to you. Even between identical twins, your fingerprints are unique. And I found that so incredible. How your skin is structured determines that you will maintain those fingerprints throughout your entire life, and they are unique to you. I think one of the other really cool things is that your what we call friction-ridge skin, so the actual ridged skin on your hands, allows you to grip objects. That was something that evolved over time to allow people to handle objects and hold on to things. I just think it's so cool. I think it's amazing. Um, And, you know, the really cool part is that this uh, unique signature is left behind on various types of evidence. So the other element of fingerprinting is that you're spending a lot of time looking for that needle in a haystack. You're looking for a single fingerprint on multiple types of surfaces. It could be a soda can, it could be a firearm, it could be a banana peel, it could be um, surgical gloves. It really is a, quite a variety of, of um, <clears throat> substrates that we're looking for fingerprints on. And so, not only do you get to find it, but then you get to photograph it, you get to enhance it with different types of chemicals. And then you actually get to perform the comparison or pattern recognition piece where you're looking for characteristics in the fingerprint that you can compare to a standard. Um, And so it's really, it's really interesting. And when you're able to identify an individual or exclude an individual, that is really powerful in answering investigative questions. Now, there's, like I said, other disciplines. So for example, uh, to- toxicology would be a different element a lot of instrumental analysis but still really fascinating because each uh, drug is metabolized by your body it breaks down over time so they're looking for the different components broken down depending on if they're looking at it in your blood versus your urine they're looking for how much you could have taken. And then there's this pharmacological study about how it, could be impact, how it impacts your behavior and how it impairs you. And those types of things are really, really fascinating. Um, I also really, I love the trace uh, units because they answer really interesting questions about whether or not a fragment of glass could have come from a certain pane of glass. So, for example, if we're talking about a burglary and uh, some, some uh, glass fragments were found on someone's shoe, the potential suspect in the case, and then they compare those fragments back to the house where the glass was broken, they'll be able to tell you the unique signa- signatures of those chemicals actually match for those particular glass panes. Some of those questions are just incredible that we can answer that from a scientific standpoint. It's very subjective. Um, And so I just, you know, I get excited (laughs) when I talk about that. So like I said, I spent seven years uh, participating in that component, and I found it very satisfying Um, and really interesting. Continuing education is a big part of forensic science. There's always new developments. Uh, The National Institute of Justice is constantly contributing money and grants for further development in forensics, so there's a lot of growth right now, especially in forensics. Um, So I did that for quite a few years um, and really recognized my desire to really also embrace the part of me that loves to engage with people and so because of that, I really started to explore more leadership-type roles, and um, I'm kind of a solution-based thinker. I like to solve problems, and so I really saw leadership as an opportunity to really dive into that problem-solving. Um, so I uh, took a role as the trace and latent supervisor for the Portland Forensics Laboratory, and I served in that role for about four years. Uh, During that time, I supervised about uh, 13 people and started to really embrace what leadership looked like versus the doer. I always kind of recognize that as a forensic scientist, you're doing a lot. When you move into leadership, it's more about guiding. And that's a really unique transition, but guiding um, is really attractive in the sense that when you see that you helped someone make a difference in their life, I found that really fulfilling, and I still got to be a part of the forensic component. Um, and then I also served as the quality assurance lead worker for a little while, and that was a really interesting facet of the job because uh, it ensures that the work we're doing is to the the best possible standard that we can set Um, it really ensures that we're doing what we say we're doing so that was really interesting for me and I think it was great exposure but it also did not um, have that hands-on leadership component that I really thought was important more of an operational component was attractive to me so um, in 2019 Right before the pandemic, (laughs) I took on one of the most difficult roles I've ever had, and I took over as the laboratory director of the Portland Forensics Lab. And uh, the first, like, two months, you know, I was trying to kind of wrap my head around it. Uh, Just to give you the context, our Portland Metro Forensics Laboratory is the biggest one in the state. The Oregon State Police has five laboratories located throughout the state. Portland is the only full service laboratory, and we have about 82 individuals at that lab. Um, Some of the other labs have anywhere between three individuals to 15 individuals. So as you can see, it's almost three times, four times as much as the other uh, labs in size. It also means that the diversity of uh, disciplines performed at that laboratory is significantly different than some of the other labs, and we provide some of the more advanced services such as DNA analysis, advanced firearms, Uh, all of our toxicology services are there except for uh, blood alcohols, and then all of our trace analysis is there. So pretty massive array of disciplines. and really, Portland Metro is one of the most densely populated areas as well. So you can imagine the demand for work is significant. Um, just to give you context, we receive about uh, anywhere between uh, fifteen to twenty thousand requests per year at that laboratory, and uh, it is a constant demand. Uh, as you can imagine, during the pandemic. There was a shift in the type of work that we were being requested to do. Things like toxicology um, definitely spiked in demand. There was kind of this change in uh, people utilizing controlled substances more, um, definitely more domestic violence uh, because people were isolated in their homes and things like that. So um, it's really an ever-changing dynamic environment, and um, it really requires um, concentrated, uh, detail-oriented support, especially during the pandemic when we had high stress, and our job was already very stressful, but um, it certainly increased that level for our group.
0: I'm just imagining you. I love that you said, let me give you some context, and I'm so glad you did, because if i'm not mistaken the the cases that you all you and your team are providing services for they're coming from cities counties state it's not just the state police cases it's that's everybody right. it's everybody yeah. you're serving everybody that would be in that portland metro area those cases are coming to your team and that's
1: yeah Absolutely. And it's kind of interesting that we say the Oregon State Police Forensics Laboratory, because we actually service 90% of our requests are not Oregon State Police. So you can imagine that most of our work actually doesn't come from the Oregon State Police. Our service is free to all county and municipal law enforcement agencies.
0: Yeah. Okay. So here's why, I mean, first of all, I mentioned this to everybody, just the the way that Liz inhabits the world is beautiful in her embrace of faith and reason and science and wonder and We could talk all day about that, but one of the things that was so important to me and I think is so important is just to think about how our work matters in the world. And Liz drives and commutes into Portland, into a particular place at a particular time, and is responsible then for guiding, as she says, shepherding and caring for everybody within that division, the forensic scientists, the support staff, Everyone who is doing their job and their craft where it matters, making decisions on DNA evidence, firearms evidence, blood evidence, all of that is within the umbrella that Liz's calling and vocation has brought her into this space. And so just pin that in your mind as you're driving and you're running, you're listening, you're like, okay, yeah, okay. And I imagine this person, Liz, a scientist, somebody who has this life of faith. Now she's in this significant city. Responsible for the men and women who are doing the hard work of making decisions that are going to impact justice in people's lives, her work matters. She matters. And Liz, there's a there's a the president of BioLogos. I don't know if you're familiar with the BioLogos Institute, and it's Francis Collinsworth' work. work. Uh, Dr. Deborah Harsman, she's the president of it. She's an MIT grad. She's a brilliant scientist and she says this she says christ gives us hope science equips us to act and i love that like christ gives us hope and then and it's almost like the hard science are nested within the meaning of this bigger story and Without that, when, when that's reversed, when there is no bigger story and we just have our hard science disciplines, I think it can be harder to, to show up to work every day because we don't know why, and that's lost. You're responsible for communi- commuting into Portland, and you have that perspective that Christ gives us hope, and then science equips us to act. I imagine that it's not always easy because of what you see and just the sheer volume of tragedy that, I mean, it, that's, it's moral tragedy after moral tragedy after moral tragedy. How do you keep the hope side while you are using that science to act in a direction of hope? How have you brought that personally? We'll talk about the Portland lab, but how do you keep doing that after 14 years where you just see the worst of everything and yet, you go back with that, and, and maybe you have a different perspective. But she says, "Christ gives us hope; science equips us to act." How do you make sense of the hope part?
1: Oh, that's a great question.
2: <laughs> um, you know, I think I think
1: it's important to acknowledge that hope in some moments can be fleeting for me. Um, there are moments when I feel like. Is what I am doing worth it? Is it bringing bringing about um, positive change? Is it um, helping people move through tragedy? And I think one of the things that always brings me back to work is I really focus on um, how... Me showing up, even when it's hard, sets an example for the people that work on my team. Um, And I try to always show up, and sometimes I fail, but I try to always show up in a place of, I am here to support these amazing people doing the science to answer these investigative questions. And if I can't show up and support them, they're going to struggle in this moment, in this particular case they're working on. And so my job as a leader in this group is to to find strength, even when I want to say, I'm tired today. I really can't be positive today. Um, I try to really dig in to the concept that humanity as a whole wants to be loved and feel supported that's fundamental to everybody always forever if you can make people feel that way they can do anything Hmm. they can participate in a way they can show up in a way that makes them the best scientist they can be that way you can help them recognize every little thing i do has impact on the case i'm working Every time I show up, I need to be thinking about those minute details. I need to really uh, move forward with good scientific practice every time I pull a case. And so for me, um, marrying up this passion to support my people and to also have an opportunity to participate in teaching people about science and why it's important and why it can answer investigative questions as a forensic scientist and a leader. Those are so fundamental to, the, to what I have defined as success in my life, in my role, um, in, in this job.
0: Yeah, it's really what what I see in you is what uh, James Davison Hunter, famous, famous author and, and a guy looking at society, looking at societal change, he wrote a book called How to Change the World, and in that book he advocates for what he describes as faithful presence, and what he, he says is that we don't just need passionate people. Like, it's great that Liz Plannery has a private life of faith. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. And there's meaning there. And there's an and. And that calling is to inhabit the world faithfully, to be present in a world where we need the best scientific mind looking at questions, investigative questions that matter for justice. If that goes away, there's kind of like a golden thread all the way back to Liz's faithful presence. If she inhabits that space well, the people on that team, first of all, they'll even apply. I was reading the director of the CIA, um, his new book, and William Burns, and he was saying that there's a decline in foreign service over the last decade or so. There's been a massive decline. People just don't want to be in public service anymore. And it is imperative. You don't want, you don't want, you know, the least qualified scientists making decisions on DNA. How are we going to inhabit those tough spaces? Liz, your faithful presence matters, and it matters at an institutional level. How have you seen. Just directly, uh, that idea of loving people in the workplace. I'm thinking about the people who right now are listening and they run a bank or a school or a law firm or inhabit a church in any different way. As a leader, how do you do that? What are the habits and practices that you employ so that you can show up full for those people? So that you are, you know, we always say it's only true if it's true. Like, you, Liz, can't go in and say these things, if you don't embody these things, what, how do you embody those things? Cause I imagine you're also mom, wife, athlete commute. What's happening in the margins that makes it true when you go into that space that you can lead like that?
1: Yeah. And you know, I think you're kind of opening this great door to my path of leadership because, um, I, I, Although I think that some people are born with these natural skill sets of leadership, I I truly believe that leadership it takes time to develop because you have to fail a lot as a leader to really understand how your actions impact other people. And I think when I was really new in leadership, um, I often made the mistake of believing that everybody thought like me, that everybody had the same types of goals, expectations, um, and that we would approach situations very similarly. And that was really not true. I also made the mistake of being very guarded. Um, And when I say guarded, I mean, I felt like showing who I was as a human, as a flawed human, made me less of a leader. And that was so not true, but it took me a while to understand that. When people see you as a flawed human being and still leading, it helps them connect in a way because they understand that even in that position, you are still human. Even though the standards are higher, even though you are held to a higher standard, if you are flawed and accept those flaws and say, I see my flaws you create a connection between yourself and someone else that is not available if you choose to remain removed. And um, I think part of that was rooted in my ego and fear of judgment. And I think a lot of people experience that. Um, Whether they acknowledge it or not is part of the battle. But recognizing you know that's actually my ego speaking into that, <laughs> and my fear that somebody is gonna think I'm not good enough, or that you know, what is that um uh imposter syndrome kind of mentality where it's like man, people are gonna judge me, I don't have all the skills, but the truth is is when you can say in a conversation. I acknowledge this flaw or I'm sorry, those allow for connections in ways that um, people really gravitate towards and they really make you a better leader. And I think one of the things that has really helped me a lot personally is I can't always do it on my own. I've really spent a lot of time asking others for help in my path in leadership. Um, For example, your brother is a great coach, and he's been fantastic in helping me really sort out some of my own challenges and recognizing where my ego might be showing up or, you know, what is it really at the root of whatever that issue might be for you. But ultimately, you know, you're winning if you're willing to make the change and acknowledge the fall. Hmm. So... I kind of
0: live in that space. Yeah. I love just the honesty of saying that, and you hit it on the head. I think all of us go through that season of going, I, my job is to have it all together. That's why I'm been getting, given the job to lead. And so the last thing I want to do is look like I don't have it all together because that's what I'm supposed to have. And we realize like, no, that's not how people succeed. They succeed by seeing the, like you said, seeing, allowing people to see the reality. And that's the only thing that gives us hope that we can lead is to see somebody else, and they don't do it perfectly, and it gives us the courage to say, "Well, if they didn't do it imperfectly, but they showed up, I'll show up." And that's a it's beautiful. I still just imagine you commuting into work, going. "Uh, It's well, the Pacific Northwest is it can be dark anyway, just rainy and drizzly, and like, oh, (laughs) you know, do Uh, I? All the time. (laughs) Do I want to go into this job? What do you say to the young person? who love science they are like you they love they have a curious mind they like solving puzzles and problems and they're just attracted to science but they feel like faith and science are incompatible and they feel like hey i'm not going to be able to continue to succeed i might be able to participate at a doer level but I'll never. There's no future for me in science as a person of faith. I'll have to give up what I hold really dear to me in order to um, in order to continue to have some sort of a, a vocational path. What do you say to that person who says, I, "Liz, I I want to pursue my my career in science, my passion for science." But I fear that I'm going to have to do it at the exclusion of my faith. What have you learned that can help that person kind of lean into what they, na- what they were given, the gift that they were given?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd say don't ever give up your passion of science because it's amazing. Um, you know, I think it's unique. It's a unique journey for each person. But one of the things that I have recognized is two things, actually. God never gives you a gift that he doesn't want you to pursue. And number two, that science is this beautiful mechanism for you to celebrate God's creations. Because you get to see intimately the details and beauty that he created. And that is the biggest celebration of God's achievements. So I see it as a more intimate relationship with God. Hmm. Because you get to see these beautiful structures, these these beautiful mechanisms that he created in the world. And
2: I don't think there's anything quite as amazing.
0: (laughs) I love that, that you it get it draws you deeper. You know, we see us Lewis further up, further in, you know, and I, you know, that idea that there's more and there's just more to discover. And the further we go, the more we see, the more wonderful it is. How are you, you're a mom too, how are you at home trying to instill that love of both, that desire to cultivate Uh, a mind and to think well, but or and to do it with a robust heart and a heart and a faith that um, trusts in a transcendent God, a God that is, you know, we can know in part, but we can't know in whole. How are you at home uh, kind of cultivating that and shepherding that into your kids?
1: You know, I think um, I have a 10-year-old and I have a 7-year-old, and both of them.
0: (laughs) That's mind-blowing. I know. Yeah, time goes by. quick.
1: I can't believe that. Um, I just constantly look at pictures, and I'm shocked by how quickly that went. But, um, you know, I think kids are naturally inquisitive, and they love to learn about how the world works. And um, it really doesn't take much to get them interested in that kind of thing. And science is a lot about asking why. And that should never be something that we shun, in children especially. That should be something we pursue. And I think, you know, the great part about science is you ask questions and you look for evidence of those, those answers. And I think you can do that in your faith as well. We want to know why. We want to explore God's reasons for doing things. And that vein runs through biology, it runs through faith. And encouraging it in science means you can also encourage it in the faith. And if that becomes part of who they are, saying, Why? Let me know more. Let me understand more. That is a beautiful skill that can transcend all disciplines Hmm. they can move across your whole
0: life so it's the seamlessness of reality that there really isn't something that is faith over here and science over here there is reality there is seamless reality and i love how you said that vein runs through both that desire to know that desire to wonder to explore to ask to wrestle it's an all of it. And I just, I'm super grateful for your example and, and the work that you're doing. Um, I just, it's what we need. I'm with Hunter that faithful presence is the way forward that, that we don't need less engagement in culture. We don't need less participation. We need more and we need more with wonder and curiosity and faith and hope and love. It's essential. And so if you're listening just Liz's story is one story but I think it's a beautiful story of the University of San Diego I don't like boats I do like people God's given me a gift that I should not shy away from I shouldn't back away from it uh, I can lean into it I can do it with the tension of you know being a person of faith at an institutional level All of this is part of why this conversation was so important to me. There's also one last thread that I got to pull on before we're going to run out of time. But, and Liz, I'm going to put you on the spot because I'll never forget your baptism. It was one of those moments we talk about seamlessness and transcendence and and I'll never forget it. I've had the honor of being a part of that moment in people's lives, lots of different people with lots of different stories. But there was something really curious about the moment that you were baptized that was like, it was if in the moment, it was so special and unique. And, you know, you can tell that story and it sounds romantic, but somebody captured a picture of it. Like there's a picture of you coming out of the water and there's something about that that you look at it and we talk about enchanted reality it's not just seamless but there's something other there's something beyond what do you remember about that moment and what do you think And this i don't know that there's a hard answer to this but i'm curious from your side like what are we seeing in that picture because it's one of my favorite pictures ever um yeah what were you what, what are we seeing in that that's so enchanted
1: no. You know, you talk about this, and I always get emotional when I talk about my baptism because um, I think for me, um, I was definitely later in life. You know, I was uh, 29 years old when that happened, and um,
2: I, I truly believe there was a a complete change, a complete acceptance in that moment. And it
1: it felt like my cup was full for once in my life. Um, It's so hard to explain. And uh, I'm sorry, my voice is starting to crack up. But um, I really felt lost for a lot of my life. I really felt like I was searching for things and I couldn't find them. And I tried to fill it with a lot of stuff. I tried to fill it with things that were not fulfilling. And I think on my baptism, it was like my cup was as full as it could ever be. It was overflowing for the first time in my life. And I remember feeling this just overwhelming sense of relief.
2: Hmm.
1: Like I didn't have to hold on so tight. I didn't have to work so hard. I didn't have to constantly seek approval. I didn't have to be somebody I wasn't. I could just be me, and that was okay. And that feeling of acceptance and fullness was so beautiful. It was one of the most beautiful moments of my
2: life.
0: I love the way you put it about like being full. And I'm just hearing Jesus's words of like, there's going to, there's living water and you're going to drink this and never thirst again. Like there's, there's something else that you've been thirsting for and it cannot be filled in any other way. But when you, when you are filled in that way and what you are discovering, I've just come to know is like the creature creator union, like you are loved not for anything that you have done but you you what we come to discover is just being embraced and loved because we are loved and that's a mysterious and beautiful thing. And I think you put a beautiful, it's one of my favorite moments too. That picture is extraordinary. And what a, what a story, right? Like, and you've continued to live from that place. That's what faithful presence is, is first. It's only true if it's true. Like it ha, it, it has to start within. It cannot be this externalized or head level thing. Like, what you experienced was first that filling, and then therefore you can be poured out. And just love that we are—we're at the end of a year. It's you know, 2022 is around the corner, and as we wrap up, I'm—I'm I'm, the last two years have been super hard for so many people, and it's hard right now for a lot of our families. And it's sometimes hard to go to go back to biologos to to keep hope and to act and to act with love. Just to kind of close us out, what do you say for everybody who does have a hard commute coming up this week? Uh, they're carrying family stuff, they're carrying financial stuff, they're carrying all the things, and they, it's hard and it feels like it's been getting harder. What can you say to that person as they're struggling on their commute to open those doors, walk through that office into whatever world they're going to inhabit and be who they were called to be, to be faithfully present. What encouragement do you have for all of us kind of as we wrap up the year to enter our places and be faithfully present, even when we just feel like, oh, it's getting hard.
1: Um, you know, I, I'm going to speak from my own personal experience for what I find has always helped me. And I, I think there are two things, recognizing that you're in that place and that it can feel very lonely in that place as if God has given you so many obstacles and why do I have to be the one to carry this? But the truth is, I think God gives us things that he knows will teach us something, teach us something about ourselves, teach us about our ability to have empathy for others. And I think when you're experiencing that pain, you can be more open to hearing that pain in others and empathizing with them. And I Hmm. think when we are able to see the pain in ourselves and walk through the door, and still be willing to be open to others, we find this deeper connection with people. Because we're not hiding that we're human. Hmm. We're not hiding our pain. That's where it becomes almost unbearable. By sharing it, we're actually creating a connection. Because let me tell you, everybody has had a really hard time the last two years. And I have found several times that some people don't even recognize that they're having a hard time. They haven't taken the time to really do that deep dive for themselves to understand the pain they've been going through. Or acknowledge the pain because it's easier to ignore it. I think if you can find in your heart to just even say the words, I'm really struggling today to somebody you work with. That, just being able to say it, is a form of
2: healing, but it also opens the door for connection, and that helps us continue to heal as well. Hmm. So I, I think, oh man, God, God gave us a community so that we can be together with each other and lean into that.
1: Lean into being human, Lean into the pain that's part of being human. But mm. also recognize that there is so much love around you, and you might not even know about it until you open that door. Mm.
0: I love that invitation to the kind of kenotic experience to this, the outpouring, this, this opportunity for what seems like death to become life um, and to let our hearts touch. You know, we, like you said, we're so nervous. There's so many reasons not to. There's so many reasons to feel like my job right now is to put the wall up, to put the mask on, to just tuck my shoulder and go. And, and collectively, a million people collectively tucking their shoulders, wearing a mask, putting a wall up, that it creates a context that I think that's part of what we're all feeling. And I think what what can little by little transform that experience is that when we have the courage to say you know what little by little let's take the wall down take the mask off open up and let our hearts touch and what we discover in in those spaces is going to be really beautiful and it is going to bring us back to the hope that we share and then we can get to the part of encouraging each other to act uh, from that place of hope. Liz, thank you so much for just embodying it. Uh, Like I said, when we started, you're one of my heroes. You're one of the people I respect a ton. Please keep doing it. Uh, The fact that Oregon has you leading an institution, being faithfully present every day is an inspiration to me. I see so much life and beauty in the work that you're doing and in who you are. And so everybody who's listening, if you can remember it, Say a prayer for Liz and for her team and for the work of justice. It matters. And let's continue to do that and just expand that community. Now you know the name of the person who's in charge and responsible for the people who are doing that tough work. So remember her in your prayers. And Liz, keep it up. Lots of life and beauty uh, from you. And I love it. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. We're so grateful to share this time with you. And even more than that, we're grateful you're a part of this growing movement of life and beauty. Until our next conversation, make sure you like, subscribe, follow the podcast, follow us on Instagram, check out VUVIVO.com to learn more about our work. And we'll see you back here for Lab the Podcast next time.